Morning. Good to see you. <laughs> Always nice to be together. One of the challenges that uh, I have in my own personal study is understanding the book of Acts. That may seem odd to you. But the problem with the book of Acts is that I've been taught it since I was young to the point that what was pointed out to me over and over again is what I now see. And it is difficult to study any book when you are already told what you should be looking for. And as you study, you begin to see those things that you were looking for. And what you miss is the things that are clearly revealed that you were not looking for and are therefore hard to comprehend. And Acts is one of those things. And I would imagine that many of you have, have the same challenge that I have had in that particular study. When someone says, well, Acts is about the establishment of the church, and Acts is about conversion stories, and Acts is about how people come to Christ, and that gets sunk into my mind, then when I begin to read the book of Acts, it ruins the whole message of Acts, the moment that is in my mind. The message of Acts talks about some of those things, certainly, but being able to scope back and actually see the message as Luke intended it to be seen is far more difficult. And that is something that we want to examine this morning. We have been told oftentimes, and I know I was told this many, many times as I was growing up, that in, the, in Acts chapter 2, the church was started. And we all agree, yeah, that's right. Jesus said, I will build my church, and then people were added to his body. And then very quickly, uh, someone might say, well, that's when the kingdom began. And we go, yeah, that's right. Kingdom is the church, and that's when the kingdom began, so that's when the church began. And that's when we begin to have some problems. So I'd like to consider what uh, Anthony read for us this morning in Matthew chapter 13, and verse 37, uh, 36 down through verse 43. And he's read the text for us, so we will, we will just talk about a few things that I want you to see in the text. The first thing I want you to see is specifically in verse 38. You will notice that Jesus giving the interpretation of this parable, uh, you'll excuse me, I just can't help calling it the parable, the tares. I'm just not used to weeds <laughs> in the newer version. But at any rate, uh, the parable, the tares, the parable, of the weeds here. You notice that when Jesus explains it, he says in verse 38, the field is the world, the good seed are the sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. In the world there has been planted good seeds, which are the sons of the king, the sons of, uh, of the kingdom, either way, and the evil are the sons of the wicked one, the sons of the evil one. These are planted and have been planted in the world. And please notice carefully, the field is the world. 
Now when we get on down, we notice even further that the message then that Jesus was giving in this parable was to try to get his audience to understand that when they think of a kingdom, they should not be thinking of a kingdom in the sense that they have seen kingdoms in this world. It is not a kingdom like the kingdoms of this world. In a kingdom of this world, the king who would come to the throne is going to get rid of all of the evil ones that are in his kingdom. He's going to weed them out, if you will. In fact, in the parable, the angels even say to the master, should we go out and weed up, bring up those those uh, those tares that are in the midst of the wheat? Should we gather them up? No, 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 because you may gather up the good as well as the bad. You wait until the harvest, and then we will divide them out. And that is exactly Jesus trying to show them that in his kingdom, no human being is going to go out and do the crusades, as happened, and do other uh, religious physical warfare. That is not the way this is going to work. We will lay our lives down, and the world will come to Jesus because we give ourselves up just as he did. There's the message of the parable. But then he gets down, and you will notice in verse 40, verse 40, he says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, when he's gathering out of the kingdom, what is he gathering out of? What is what is he gone and gathered out of the kingdom? Is he gathering it out of the church? No, because the field is the world. The field is not the church. The field is not the saved. The saved are the church referring to all that God has saved, all that Jesus has written in his book of life. There is no possibility that Jesus at the end of time would come and say, well, let me start with all my saved people and let me gather out of them those who practice wickedness and lawlessness, etc. And the reason that couldn't happen is because none of them are practicing those things. They are saved. Now, Jesus at any time, of course, could remove someone while we're in, in, living in this world. He could remove someone from his book of life, but he keeps a perfect role of all the saved. When the scripture says that he will gather out of his kingdom, he is obviously not talking about gathering out of the church. We're not talking about local churches. He's talking about the universal church, and that's kingdom is not church in this text. If it were, you would ruin the parable. The parable is the kingdom is the world. The rule of Christ is over the whole world, and within the realm of the rule of Christ are evil and good alike, and they grow up together, and it will not be until the time of the harvest when the king sends out the angels, and they will then gather up and divide them that's the picture of this particular parable. If you are like me, you were taught something entirely different. 
I still read articles written by preachers who say, on the day of judgment, God is going to gather out of the church all who are practicing wickedness and lawlessness, and they get up and preach and warn the congregation that even though you are one of the saved, God's liable to gather you up on the day of judgment and cast you out. And uh, that's not what the parable means. So you might ask this question. How did the idea of making church and kingdom identical or referring to exactly the same thing? Where did this start? And this is the, here, here is how it started. I remember it quite well because I'm over 100 years old. Uh, back at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, Adam's going to amen one of these things. <laughs> back at the beginning of the 20, 20th century, we find that there was a rise of a doctrine called premillennialism, that, that Jesus was going to, uh, at some time, uh, return. Well, let me back up just a second. Premillennialism was that God had promised a kingdom when Jesus came, and that's in Daniel and Isaiah, and he promised a kingdom, and then when he got here, uh, the Jews killed him, and that didn't work. And so instead, he began to promise that he would start the church instead, and that the church was a substitute for beginning the kingdom, and now we're still waiting for the kingdom to be established in a thousand-year reign on the earth, Jesus returning pre the millennium. That's how that started. In order to defeat that doctrine, preachers pointed out that when the Bible talked about the kingdom coming, that was also referring to when God's people would be saved, the church. They're absolutely right about that. It was going to start the same way. But what the problem was is that was repeated over and over and over again to defeat the premillennial doctrine. And then pretty soon we got in our minds that when you said kingdom, you were saying church. And the church began to be emphasized over and over again to counter the idea that church was just God's afterthought and that he just started it instead of the kingdom and was still waiting for the kingdom to come. If you followed that, hooray for you, uh, because I could do a whole lesson trying to explain all those details, but I'm giving you a little heads up on that. So kingdom being that which started at the same time because God's saved people are the citizens of the kingdom, then that was an answer to this church age argument. Well, what happened then is, as we said, church became something that was established. Let me just mention something here. That if you believe the church was built, you're thinking denominationally. The church was not built. The church is in building. People are still being added to it. It is not completed because church is just a collection of saved people, and that is still going on. It gave the connotation of an institution, of something that God would, had created with no one in it, and then God created it, and now people are getting into it, is the idea. Church became more than just saved people, and it soon became an organization by which you could find salvation. Here's this organization, if you want to be saved, you need to get into the church. And then all kinds of erroneous terminology followed from that, preaching that we need to get into the right church. Now we've invented something that God didn't invent. Uh, invent. Uh, uh, where is that right church here on earth? 
Now are you talking universal? Are you talking local? What are you talking about? And so you got to get into God's church, but which one's God's church? we got to get into the right church. And then the importance of the church became preached and advertised over and over again. You've got to get in the church if you want to be saved. And then there were warnings of falling away from the church. You can't fall away from the church. You fall away from Christ. You fall away from Christ, Christ removes you from His book of life. It's not falling away from the church. It's falling away from the Jesus. Church is then spoken of as a glorious church, a glorious institution. And that is a misuse of Ephesians 5 and verse 27. When, Jesus, uh, when Paul said that, that would, when Jesus returned, he would present the church to himself in splendor or in glory. Yes, he will glorify us. But it mean that you talk about the church as some kind of glorious organization or glorious institution that we are to be attracted to and come into because that's where salvation uh, would be found. That isn't the idea. And here's the error then in two, two different simple ways. The right church doesn't exist on earth. You can't find it. Of course, how am I using the word church there? In a universal sense, which is not visibly, visibly seen on earth. Because church is not made up of churches. And that's what was believed. Church is made up of individual Christians. And they are scattered in local churches all over the world. Just because you, come, you become a part of a local church, even a local church that's living and acting faithfully, does not necessarily mean you climbed into some kind of institution that is going to save you. Your relationship with Christ is what is first and primary here. No one, therefore, chooses to get into the church. You must obey Christ, and Christ will add you to his group of saved people. That is the picture that is being given in the New Testament, but here's where that is missed. As a sidebar here, let's just notice that the idea that we need to understand here is that there is a kingdom emphasis, and church in a sentence is just referring then to those who are saved. Jesus adds us when we obey. The correct way to teach someone is not to teach them about the church, but to teach them about Christ and urge them to come and submit to the king, the king of kings. And when we submit to the king, the king will forgive us of our sins and add us to his group of saved people. That's the correct way to look at this. When you look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and we do not have time to do a detailed discussion of this, but when you look at that particular text, let me please notice with you, as you may be looking in your Bible, notice with you a few important things. First, you notice then in verse 3 that for 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he taught the disciples, uh, the apostles, about, his, about the kingdom of God. After that, he told them how the Spirit was going to be poured out. They would be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. And then the apostles then ask a question. Is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They added up these two things and came to the right conclusion. 
And that is he's telling about the kingdom and then he's telling about the pouring out of the Spirit and those two things are connected in the Old Testament as to when the kingdom would begin, the reign of Christ would begin. But it wasn't about time. Jesus didn't rebuke the question. He said the time is not for you to know. But instead, you are to go out with the power of the Holy Spirit and bring the message to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The whole letter, you know this about letters of the New Testament, the message of the letter is, is almost always couched in the introduction just as you and I would if we were writing a paper. So he introduces the idea of the kingdom. What the restoration then of the kingdom means is the people of God had been separated from him because of their, uh, their, uh, their disobedience and rejection, and therefore God is bringing them back. He is restoring them and restoring the world order to the way it was originally intended. He is doing a restoration. And the king is coming, Jesus. The king came to start that restoration process. That's the idea of the restoration of the kingdom. May I just say, it is important to understand God's always had a kingdom. When we talk about from the Old Testament, the kingdom coming, we're not talking about a brand new kingdom. We're talking about a new king who is coming to the throne and sitting on the same throne that David sat on, that God sat on, that sits on, and it's all the same thing. But this new king will restore the kingdom. He will bring it back to where it's supposed to be. I've often thought about it like in Genesis 3, Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall and shattered to pieces and Jesus came back to put him back together again. In a very simple childlike way, He, God is restoring things to the way it used to be and the way God has intended it before time began. So, Let's just notice quickly a few passages that indicate that. In the book of Amos, chapter 9, verse 11 and 12, Amos prophesied this, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen. That's the kingdom of David. It's, it's crushed, it's fallen. Now Amos was preaching to a physical people that were still existence. He, he was, the northern kingdom, southern kingdom were still in existence. But he says it's fallen, it's gone. It isn't the kingdom of God anymore. It is the kingdom that the people are following that are, that are of Satan. So he's going to raise it back up and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess God's kingdom, possessing the remnant of Eden and all the nations. These are the enemies. Be able to possess them by bringing them into God's reign, God's kingdom. And all those who are called by my name, <coughs> declares the Lord. This is quoted in the book of Acts by James in Acts 15, verse 13, saying it has been fulfilled. So if there's anything here you thought is still future, it's not. This is in, in fulfillment, I should say. Not fulfilled completely, but in the process of it. We look at that, we see David, Peter quoting David in Acts chapter 2. 
uh, when he speaks of Jesus taking the throne. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's restoration. Making the enemies his footstool, bringing them all down. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus will reign in his kingdom until, until there is no more death. Death will be cast into, into Hades and, and, and destroyed. Death and Hades cast into the lake of fire, excuse me, in Acts chapter, I mean, uh, Revelation chapter 20. We also see this when Peter preaches in Acts 3. He says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Christ appointed for you, this will be the second coming. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Restoration is in process, but the restoring will be completed when Jesus returns his second time. Just think now in terms of the excitement of the good news of the kingdom when you read those things especially if you had a Jewish background and you understood how that everything fell apart, that God's people turned away from, they worshiped the idols, they went to the nations, and the nations over and again, and their gods even conquered God's people because they had rejected the Lord. And then the prophecy comes from Isaiah 52 and verse 7. The king is returning, your God reigns. That's the good news. Your God has come to reign and conquer the enemies and bring salvation to his people, releasing them out of the bondage that they had with the serpent. That's the idea. And thus he says in Isaiah 52, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. He's talking not about preachers, he's talking about everybody who is excited to know the gospel message, who publishes peace, who bring good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Our God reigns. And when he reigns, the, the universe is in trouble because he is going to conquer the enemies and he's going to bring his people back to himself. He's going to make it possible that Satan can no longer conquer us again. That's the message of the king. That's the message of the kingdom and has a whole lot more to do with what God is doing than yippee, I just got saved. And we need to back up and see what God is seeing here. That's the picture. Let's emphasize it a different way. And I've mentioned this part before. In all four Gospels, the word church is used only one time when it's referring to the Lord's church. There's one other time ecclesia is used, but it's not referring to the Lord's church. Only one time in all four Gospels. It takes a long time to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's only one time he says church. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Kingdom is used 158 times. 158 times. If we just stop right there, we would understand what a major difference in emphasis. You can't miss it. Everything Jesus is talking about over and over again in the gospel accounts is the kingdom. And what the king is about to do. He's announcing his rule from heaven. 
That's what he is doing. Now, when you think of the word church, the word church here, so it's interesting, it's used 19 times in the book of Acts. But every single time it's used, it's used concerning in a local sense, that is, a church in a location like Corinth or Ephesus or in a vicinity of like Judea. He's using it over and again concerning just people who have obeyed the gospel of Christ and have joined together in a local area to worship and do the things a local church would do. It's never used in a universal sense in the book of Acts. Isn't that amazing? Never is the word church used in a universal sense in the book of Acts. Even in Acts 2.47, I mentioned this to you when we first started this series, and the Lord added to the Old King James, to the church, those who are being saved. It's not the word ecclesia there. Added to the number, to their number. Now I believe he was referring, in a universal sense, probably more, possibly, unless he's just talking about those in Jerusalem. But still, it's not used. Ecclesia is not used there in that text. Now here's what's interesting. Kingdom is used eight times in the book of Acts, but it is the primary message it's at the beginning, it's at the middle, and it's at the end. It's the primary message over and again. Let me notice with you. Here's the eight times. Chapter 1, 3. Appearing to them during 40 days, Jesus was speaking about the kingdom of God. Verse 6 of chapter 1. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Chapter 8, 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ... They were being baptized, both men and women. 14.22, Paul goes through the Galatian churches, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 19.8, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. 20 verse 25, and now behold, as he speaks to the elders at Ephesus, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. 28.23, when Paul gets to Rome, when they had appointed a day for him. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. And the very last verse of Acts, Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. All the way through, everything is about the kingdom. I want you to notice the pattern that is used here. The kingdom is what is preached. The kingdom is what is preached. The kingship of Jesus is what is preached. The restoration of all things is what is preached. The church is never preached. The church is never preached. The church is a result of preaching the king and the kingdom. We don't preach the church because the church is just us dum-dums who've been forgiven. It's just us sinners who've been forgiven. That's all it is. You don't preach that. You preach the king. All my life, the church was preached. And we were preaching the wrong thing. 
we're preaching like, you need to get to our church because our better church is better than your church. It's not what this is about. It's preaching the king. And we obey the king. And a local church needs to obey the king. And we need to be a part of a local church that's obeying the king. All those things are true. But that doesn't mean we're preaching the church. It means we're preaching the king. The king we don't vote on. The king's rules we don't vote on. The king's rules are the king's rules and we must obey the king's rules or we're not his people, whether in a local church or otherwise. We need to illustrate over and again who we're actually preaching here. How has this affected us today? Let's bring this together. First, I would suggest that when we have almost all the emphasis placed on church, then our thought process and our emphasis is placed on membership. I don't get me wrong. We've talked about that in a previous lesson. The Lord has asked us to be a part of a local church because there are certain things we must do as a group of local Christians. Not taking away from that. But when that is the supremacy of our message, that the church is what this is all about, we start thinking primarily of us and of membership. We become inward thinking instead of outward thinking, and you do not see that in the New Testament. Secondly, a Christian's responsibility becomes the local church instead of seeing the larger purpose of the king or the kingdom, and that's being lost. In fact, as Ed Harrell and I were talking many years ago, he said one of the worst things that's taking place right now, he referred to it, and of course as a historian, he used big words that I didn't understand. He said it's the hyper-church movement. And I'm like, hyper-what? <laughs> hyper-church movement. Meaning, this is about us here at Woodland Hills. And if you're in a church over there, then you just think about what you're doing. Ever notice how many times that is just not seen in Scripture? For example, in Acts 8, verse 3 and 4, but Saul was ravaging the church. Who was he ravaging? People who were Christians. He's ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went everywhere trying to find a new place to start a church. Uh, oops. I am absolutely convinced that's what we would do. They went everywhere preaching the word, the word of the kingdom, preaching Christ. And the result of that was local churches started. It's because everywhere in the book of Acts where the gospel is preached, there becomes a local church when Paul or whoever leaves. But they weren't preaching the church, and the church wasn't the center of every activity that a Christian did. We act independently as kingdom citizens and kingdom disciples. We've lost the desire also of making strong connections with Christians in other places. Please pay careful attention to the end of many of Paul's letters. In Romans 16, he devotes an entire chapter practically. 
an entire chapter greeting and mentioning. Greet them, salutations from us to you, from this person to that person, over and over again. The apostle Peter said, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. He wasn't talking about a brotherhood of churches because there's no such thing. He was talking about a brotherhood of Christians. We need to gain our appreciation for Christians in other areas and other churches. Pray for them. Get to know them. Want to be a part with them. When I was growing up and the first early years of my preaching, people would travel two hours plus to go to somebody else, some other church's gospel meeting. And then every single visitor would be asked over to somebody's house afterwards. Worship started at 7.30, you know, the scriptural time. It was started at 7.30, and you didn't get done till 8.30. You stood around and talked till 9 o'clock, and then you went over to somebody's house and had coffee and cake, and you stayed till 11 o'clock, and then you drove an hour back home. That's what you did because you loved seeing other Christians. We're not preaching a church. We're preaching a kingdom. And it's so critically important. Now I'll mention one other. Church supremacy has caused us to misunderstand the purpose of an evangelist. Now we churches speak of our preacher. And many churches I know put great restrictions on their preacher as far as him doing any other work outside of their area. Danny McGee brought me to tears the day he talked to me and David Claypool. And Danny said, we are not hiring you as our preacher. We want to support you as an evangelist and you know what evangelists ought to do and we're urging you to do the work of an evangelist and help us do the work of the Lord. I didn't say it to him, but I thought it. I thought, what's the matter with you? You've been reading your Bible? So refreshing. And I've been able to do that here. And we're not talking about gospel meeting somewhere. We're talking about doing the work of the Lord in His kingdom, regardless of whether it has a direct benefit on those, this local congregation or not. Paul speaks of long list of fellow laborers. And he doesn't even, he's not even with them most of the time. They're people who are working in different areas. He's leaving Timothy here, stay there a few years. Please go over here. Work with this church over here. And it's not like anybody... You know what? There, there's, a, there's a great little book that I have in my library. It's called Arkansas Angels. The sweetest thing. Talks about how the gospel got out in Arkansas. How preachers spent their entire life Many times preaching for three churches on one Sunday and traveling as fast as they can to the next. Doing everything they could to get the gospel out. Spending weeks here, weeks there, weeks over here. Because nobody said, this is our preacher. It's an evangelistic effort. It's a kingdom effort. That's the idea. All right, here's our conclusion. 
Let's make sure we get it all together. What is the body? So, oh, that's simple. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. He's the head of over all things to the body, which is the church. Exactly. Is the church and the body same? Well, <laughs> the people are saved, are the church, and those who are saved are in the body. So, yeah, it's the same people, but it's the same thing. No, when we think of body, that's a metaphor for an active participation. Church is just the folks. Body is a metaphor for the working together of those individuals. If I introduced Teresa to you and I said, this is Teresa, she's a woman, you would go, what? You gone woke? What, what, what are you talking about? But if I say, this is Teresa, she's my wife, She's the mother of my children. She's the grandmother of our grandchildren. This is Teresa. You go, oh, that's a much different thing. Talking about the same person? Okay. But we're not talking about the same thing at all. And the same thing is true with church and kingdom. Church is a nondescript term. It's just people. But kingdom includes the citizens, which would be the church, universal, but it also is about the king's rule. It's about the king's mission. It's about the king's purpose. It's about the king's relationship to his subjects. It's about what the king will do to his enemies. Kingdom is a much bigger descriptive picture. Church doesn't tell me anything except this is a group. And in this case, a saved people. That's the idea of so, bottom line, the good news of the king is the wet message the world needs to hear. And if we are not careful in making the biblical differentiations, we will be nothing more than a denomination, and it won't matter what you put on the sign. It'll still be a denomination. We must study and get our terms correct. Otherwise, we're preaching the wrong message. Such an important thing. So much more to say about this, but that will do, and you can study from there. We're going to sing a song right now. If we, any way we can help you in your searching for the Lord, we'd be glad to do so. Please step forward while together we stand and sing.